Cyber criminal. If you drew a picture in your mind of a cyber criminal, what would it look like? A highly skilled knowledge worker, probably working from home, but networked and highly organized. Or a pimply faced kid in a hoodie working from their parents' basement. It turns out that today, the cyber criminals we need to worry most about are no longer kids in hoodies. Today's cyber criminals are professional, organized, and effective. Tom O'Malley is a recently retired federal prosecutor. He worked in financial and online crimes during his 30-year career with the U.S. Department of Justice. We've been chatting about financial crime and the international crime syndicates that victimize people of all ages and businesses alike. In 2020 alone, there were over 790,000 complaints of suspected internet crime reported to the FBI's Internet Crime Complaint Center, with losses exceeding $4.2 billion. Tom is telling me about the Gosnim case, an account takeover story that made headlines in 2019. Here's Tom. On December 16, 2019, Krasimir Nikolov, 47, of Bulgaria, was sentenced to 39 months in prison following his conviction on charges of criminal conspiracy, computer fraud, and bank fraud for his role as a member of the Gosnim Malware Cybercrime Network. Approximately $100 million was the loss figure, and the victims were often small businesses and small merchants. Losses of hundreds of millions of dollars in cases like these are not unusual. What is unusual is that some of these people were actually indicted, prosecuted, and brought to justice. That guy, Krasmir Nikolov, was arrested in Bulgaria and extradited to the Western District of Pennsylvania in the U.S. Why is this unusual? Well, these complex networks are recruited through the dark web. Members are frequently geographically dispersed, and they reside in countries without extradition authority. In the Gosnim case, the conspirators were located in various countries around the world, including, but not limited, to Russia, Georgia, Ukraine, Bulgaria, and Kazakhstan. And these members are all experts in their individual fields fields with high degrees of specialization, all crucial for campaigns devised with sophistication and scale. Here's Tom O'Malley again. All right, so in the Gosnim case, was a conspiracy and defendants in conspiracy use a network of co-conspirators, each with specialized technical skills and services to further the goal of stealing money. So in the Gosnim case, you had malware developers their job was to create, develop, manage, and lease the malware. Then you had the cryptors, and their job was to encrypt malware in a way so as to avoid detection by the antivirus tools and software that a victim computer may have, you know, the victims on their computers. Then you have the spammers, and the spammers' job was to distribute en masse the malware, and they typically do this through phishing email campaigns. And the phishing email campaigns are designed to appear legitimate and entice the victim recipients to opening up the email, clicking on a link or attachment, and then that facilitates the downloading the malware onto the victim's computer. 
Then you have the Bulletproof hosters. Their job is to host malware campaigns on an intricate network of servers designed to thwart the detection by law enforcement and cybersecurity researchers, and that enables the malware-related criminal activities to continue without disruption through law enforcement interaction. And then you have the cashers. These are the account takeover specialists, and their role is to use the victim's stolen login credentials, which is obtained through the Gosnim, in that case, the Gosnim malware, to then access the victim's online bank accounts and steal or attempt to steal the victim's funds through an electronic funds transfer. And then you finally have the, the cash out. So the cash out, in the context of the indictment, that was a, a conspirator who provided the cashers, the account takeover specialists, and other members of the conspiracy with access to the bank accounts, also known as the drop accounts, to receive stolen funds in the form of electronic funds transfers from victims' online bank accounts. And they utilize money mules, also known as drops, to open up accounts, withdraw stolen funds, and then transfer those stolen funds to other accounts for withdrawal. So where the Gosnum group went wrong was several members were operating in countries with cooperative law enforcement agencies, such as the Ukraine and Bulgaria. But the blueprint they used, that Tom just described, is textbook cybercrime syndicate. Malware developers, cryptors, spammers, bulletproof hosters, account takeover specialists, mules, all experts, anonymous, and usually beyond the reach of law enforcement. All of them focused on stealing account credentials, stealthily gaining access to bank accounts, transferring money into a network of accounts they control, and cashing out. They are precise in their execution and extremely organized. Now, imagine finding yourself on the losing side of a sophisticated theft like this. When my producer Doug and I started working on this episode, he mentioned to me that a couple years ago, while on vacation with another couple, his friend John Barnes was hit with a serious account takeover attack. I asked to speak with John, who, by the way, is also an attorney. Here's John Barnes. So this was back in 2018, and we had gone to Block Island, I think the middle of the month. My mom had passed away in 2013, and I had inherited a fairly small IRA from her, which I had to withdraw from the account by that particular date. So I withdrew the beneficial IRA, which was somewhere in the vicinity of $20,000. And I just quickly dumped it in my checking account. Somewhere in the middle of the, the trip, my wife mentioned to me that she saw on an email, we have an overdraft protection built in, which will kick in if the checking account is, is overdrawn. They sent us an email indicating that it was in fact overdrawn. Not sure that they indicated how much, but that was a surprise since we were on an island 12 miles off the coast of Rhode Island and hadn't accessed the account since long before. Now, I don't check my accounts online very often, maybe once or twice a month. And I immediately called the 1-800 number and found out that, yes, in fact, the overdraft protection had been utilized because somebody unknown through the internet had been uh, slowly and steadily withdrawing the the $20,000, so uh, the overdraft protection kicked in. I immediately froze that account. And so what did you do? And you were vacationing as this was happening. 
Yeah, we were in a house on Block Island, which does have an ATM and a bank, but it doesn't have my bank. So yeah, I was I was freaked out about it. Both of us were freaked out about it because I knew I had just put this 20 some odd thousand dollars into the account. And I realized that I was now out $27,000. So I freaked out, quite frankly. John went on to share a subsequent conversation he had a week or two later with his branch manager, who, having initiated an investigation and reimbursing his losses, explained what had happened. He learned that in the days prior to that overdraft notice kicking in, the criminals logged in a few times just to check things out. Then a week or two later, they began making daily transfers of just under $5,000, apparently in an attempt to stay below the radar. So what are law-abiding account holders, ordinary folks like you and me, businesses, or even our financial institutions to do to have a fighting chance against this menacing threat? In this episode of Digital Tells, sponsored by Biocatch, we're talking about account takeover fraud and how behavioral biometrics can help root out fraudsters. Now, there are certainly conditions in every online banking session financial institutions can monitor. Let's take, for example, a typical login with a username and a password. Banks may be monitoring to see if the login is coming from the same machine or IP address. But with malware or other ingenious methods, it could still be a cyber criminal in disguise. The bank might add some friction, such as sending an SMS code to the user's cell phone. Again, there are techniques to overcome that bit of friction, too. Tim Dalgleish is a global advisory leader at Biocatch, and he leads the team of data scientists and engineers who help financial institutions implement behavioral biometrics. Here's Tim. Yeah, so if we think about login, traditionally we might look Peter logging in from his normal device, uh, from his normal home network, normal IP address, and it's a very small number of data points for you to make an assessment, right? It's like, it's basically saying that if you're at home on your device, fraud can't happen, which we know from scams and all the variants of malware, the sophistication of the attacks now, that's no longer plays true. And the same thing, if you think about payments, if you're looking at how much you're paying, who you're paying, time of day, things like that. It's really quite a small number of fields that you're making an assessment on. What Biocatch does is look at the how, not just the what. You know, lots of people pay someone they've never paid before. Lots of people make payments of large amounts. doesn't mean it's risky, right? But if you know how someone's doing that, it makes a big difference to the context. So, you know, in in my mind, that's the difference. What is the difference? The difference in how someone behaves in the context of one of these attacks? Let's start with just a normal login. Imagine I've stolen your login credentials and I'm the criminal and I'm going to log in and start making a payment. Now, I don't know how you behave. I don't know whether you're left-handed or right-handed. I don't know how quickly you type. I don't know how you navigate, how you choose to navigate. Do you point and click with a mouse or do you use shortcut keys? Do you use a scroll bar? things like that. So I don't know how you behave. I've got your login credentials. So the way Biocatch helps is that we can tell if there's different behavior in all of those things that me as a criminal, I don't know about your behavior. The bank does via Biocatch. So we can see both just at the very start of the journey uh, when the criminal's starting the attack that something's not right, that the behavior is different from what we normally see. Is the login just denied or... 
Let's say there's a stepped-up authentication. The bank sends an SMS code, but the cybercriminal might be spoofing the phone or doing some kind of social engineering scam where they've got the legit user on the phone. Maybe they're pretending to be the bank and they get the user to read back the SMS code. So, you know, when we you recall a number over the phone, you go one, two, three, four, five, six. And we see similar behaviors in terms of entering. So we'll see three digits, three digits, which is different to how someone would typically do it if it was on a phone in front of them. You know, they'll type the whole thing straight out. These little, what I would call breadcrumbs, um, behavioral breadcrumbs, to help you make better decisions. It gives you an idea of, of how it works. Okay, so with these digital tells, behavioral biometrics is able to identify, say, differences in a normal user who we're able to observe over a long period of time and a criminal who might have just gotten access to the account. But what about when there's the presence of malware? Some of the more sophisticated malware will have features like remote access. And what that is, is that it allows the criminal to take control of your phone or your computer remotely and in an automated or or even in a manual way where the criminal can remotely control your phone. So they do this so you know, the bank thinks it's low risk. You know, you're logging in to do your banking from your typical device, your typical phone. But again, from a behavior perspective, we can see if your phone's being operated, but there's no one actually physically interacting with your phone. There's no touch events on the screen. It's not moving. We're not seeing presence of physical interaction with the device. It's very clear from a behavioral perspective, something's not right here and there's, there's red flags going off. Okay. We'll talk more about malware and the cybercrime ecosystem and scams in future episodes. But I hope that at least we're beginning to make the point that behavior in the digital realm is, well, telling. But it occurred to me that while talking about detecting and comparing behavior in account takeover scenarios, that some may be thinking, yes, this makes sense, people behave differently, but how does this stuff actually work? Or are digital tells and behavioral biometrics still the realm of science fiction? Ayelet Bigger-Levine is Vice President of Market Strategy at Biocatch. She's another industry veteran with a couple of decades of IT, fraud, and identity management experience. We chatted recently about how behavioral biometrics actually works, starting from collecting the data. Biocatch collects the user digital interactions with the application. So if it's a mobile device or a laptop, we'll collect the mouse clicks, the keystrokes, the timing. If it's a mobile device, we'll collect the touch activity, the swipes, the movement, the accelerometer, all of those physical events of interaction with the device. And the way that is collected is via SDK. So if it's via web, then it's a JavaScript SDK. If it's on a mobile device, there's a an embedded SDK that collects all of these events. And the analysis layer now takes all that data and analyzes it through machine learning to determine anomalies, to determine patterns that, that we've seen and provide a risk assessment. And this assessment is done in the cloud in real time, like actually during the session, which is amazing in and of itself. Can you talk about the analysis that's actually occurring? 
So there are three levels actually of analysis that we perform in leveraging machine learning. One level is the user level analysis. So comparing the current user behavior to their historical profile. In this sense, we look at the press size and cadence and do they use their left hand or right hand and what are the physical and cognitive choices that they make and that they've made when they interacted with the application throughout their journey in the past. And then we ask, what are they doing today? And does it compare or is it anomalous to what they've done in the past? And that can raise flags if they're anomalies. The second layer is a population level analysis, as you said earlier. And so the population level analysis is really comparing the population level activity against indications of good and bad. Or if we have confirmed fraud cases and confirmed genuine cases, we learn from those cases at the population level. That's particularly important and helpful when we don't have user history, when we don't have any information about the user, either it's a new user or it's an account opening situation where we haven't seen this user before. But the combination of those two is very, very powerful to protect the account lifecycle. The third layer is the combined analysis. And we're saying, even if it's the legitimate user, in other words, we look at the user profile and everything looks great, are there signs on a population level that show us that there are anomalies? And that added level really combines the two and is able to detect things like the scams. Yes, it is the legitimate user, but something is off. And can you talk about how that information is fed back to the financial institution and what they do with it? Once the data is analyzed, Biocatch then provides a risk assessment. That risk assessment ranges you know, in scores between zero and 1,000, where 1,000 is a very high risk and zero is a very low risk or high degree of confidence. And the output that is provided to customers is the score and a set of risk and genuine indicators. Those scores and indicators, once shared with financial institutions, drive decisions ranging from no action taken all the way to denied transactions in the event that the risk score is too high. The data can also be presented as evidence when investigating fraud reports. That part is really up to the institution itself. But Biocatch works with the institutions to figure out and implement the right procedures for each scenario. So yes, while this may all seem a little science fiction-y, it's happening today. In fact, Biocatch protects over 2 billion sessions per month, protects over 200 million people around the world, and is stopping over 6 million fraud incidents annually. So suffice to say, while account takeover fraud remains a gigantic problem, we're chipping away at it. Special thanks to Jonathan Barnes, Tim Dalgleish, and Ayelet Bigger-Levine. We open this episode with Tom O'Malley. Since Tom retired from the U.S. Department of Justice, he started a website called frozenpie.org. Pie is spelled P-I-I, as in personally identifiable information. The site helps consumers protect their identities. You can find a link in our show notes. Check it out. For more information about this episode, behavioral biometrics, or to share a comment or idea, please visit biocatch.com slash podcast. Join us for episode three, in which we'll explore account opening fraud. How do you detect an account application that uses fraudulent credentials like stolen or synthetic identities? Until then... Take care.